We turn again to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. Luke 22:63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we turn to yet another of the darkest sections of your word, yet... Lord, even here it is brimming with great light and hope. Mercy for sinners, Lord, and blessing as the Son of God was willing to be put to such humiliation. We know, Lord, that soon again he will come in exultation to judge the living and the dead. How, Lord, we pray that we would benefit from this your word before that happens. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Luke chapter 22 and in this final section in verses 63 to 71. This the chronology here. It's happening. This, these events are happening right after Peter's denial and regret, which we considered last time. Uh, the events are pretty simple. His beating at the hands of the soldiers and his trial at the hands of the Sanhedrin. Uh, that's the gathering of the Jewish Leaders, the most senior representation um, of the Jewish people. But the doctrine, the theology which is being taught in these things, is well, well beyond the events themselves. What was happening here illustrates and actually is the epitome of what we call Christ's state of humiliation. We'll speak more about exactly what that means, but we've spoken about it before. And anyone who knows Philippians chapter 2 understands that the crux of Christ's salvation, the crux of his ability to save was precisely in his willingness to be humiliated and to be, to be as a servant among us. And here, here's one of the great high points of that, being willing to endure this mocking and beating and yes, this condemnation. But yet, as we consider, this is what is happening to Christ, but what are the words that are coming from Christ's mouth? What are the, the things that are springing forth from his heart at this moment? They don't have to do with his circumstances at that moment. Actually, they seem to be all centered on the future. Not in his estate of humiliation, but it was only going to last just a few more days. 
and then it would come to an end. But on his estate of exaltation, which was soon coming, in his resurrection, presupposing his resurrection and everything that he said, and his being seated at the right hand of God, and his coming again to judge the living and the dead, where he would no longer stand as one mocked and condemned, but one who indeed will judge the world in righteousness. But for us, so that's, that's what's happening to Christ. This is where Christ's mind and heart are in the future, in his state not of humiliation, but of exaltation. What comes across to me, what, what I cannot possibly escape, and what I, I hope that you see, I hope it's immediately apparent to you as you read these things, is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. You know, God has brought down the, the, the brimstone, hail and brimstone from, from heaven for less provocation than this. You understand that God has brought sudden destruction for offenses and sins against people much less than his own beloved son. And here he is watching on, seeing all, as his beloved son is being mocked, blindfolded, buffeted, beaten, scorned, rejected, condemned of blasphemy and of insurrection. And he is seemingly doing nothing. Friends, this is the mercy of our God. And there's not a single one of us here that is without hope, no matter what your sin may have been. This is the merciful God that we are studying, we are considering this morning. Well, the title is Christ's Humiliation and Exaltation. And I, I have two parts, I guess, and there'll be some subpoints underneath it, but it's just really two parts here humiliation and exaltation. And I'll just I'll say the little subpoints so that you have an idea of where I'm going. But part one under humiliation would be his scorn and rejection. Secondly, his torment. And thirdly, his condemnation. And part two, his exaltation. It has to do with his resurrection, his being seated at the right hand of God. And thirdly, his coming again to judge. But first of all, the, the first part having to do with humiliation. The larger catechism asks the question, and please, again, the wonderful thing about the catechism, both the shorter and the larger one, is it gives you the categories to think about the Word of God. I was amazed at how well this worked for me as I was trying to figure out how I could organize the material I'm going to preach to this morning. And then it came to me. The catechism had all the answers already in these concepts of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And so the larger catechism in 46 asked the question, what, is the, what was the estate in the past? What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant, and in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. This is nothing new. We've spoken of it before. We've certainly spoken of his humiliation in the context of his birth, his conception and birth, long time ago. And also in the circumstances of his life. And now we consider the things accompanying his death. How did Christ humble himself in his death? 
answer is that Christ humbled himself in his death, and that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, which is what we had just seen, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors. That's what we're talking about right now. This is what's going on right now. And all these things, first of all, the scorn and rejection. In verse 63, the men who held Jesus mocked him. It's not merely enough for them to lay their wicked hands on him in arrest and and keeping him for trial. They mocked him. What a change from the triumphal entry just, just days before in Matthew 21, 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There was this wonderful choir of of people who were proclaiming Hosanna to the Son of God as he, he entered Jerusalem. But now, now is the hour of darkness. Now is the time of humiliation. And in fact, these men had joined the growing choir of voices in their rejection of Christ. This is only what was said back in Luke 17, 25. But he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's exactly what he said. He must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so he certainly was. They rejected him. But to add to it their scorn. Because their rejection is not in the form of a polite no thank you. Not at all. No, they were mocking Jesus. They were making fun of the idea that he was a prophet. Prophesy. Tell us who hit you. As Pilate soldiers would mock the idea that he was a king. In Matthew 15, And they clothed him with purple and twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then he struck him on the head and with a, with a reed and spat on him, bowing the knee, they worshipped him. That's the kind of rejection. It is not merely a polite no thank you. It is mocking. It is scornful. And friends, so it is with us. It's sometimes very hard for us to take the, the difference, the way that we are treated in this world. Because it seems like with other religions, the atheist, it's kind of a polite rejection. The secularist is just a polite rejection. Sometimes they go out of their way. They bend over backwards to be polite to other religions, and indeed the false forms of Christianity. But when it comes to true evangelical and orthodox Christianity, well, well, it's very different then. It's not merely no thank you. It's scornful. It is blasphemous. It's derision. But friends, that's the way they treated our Savior and His state of humiliation. So shall it be for us in our state of humiliation. Because if I haven't said so, you know there is a parallel, right? You know that Christ was in his situation of humiliation and then of his exaltation. He didn't belong in humiliation. He did belong in exaltation. We, friends, don't belong in exaltation. We do belong in humiliation. The state of humiliation is our native country. That's where we belong. But even for us, it's only for a time. And soon enough, we'll go to where we don't belong, which is in that state, sharing in the estate of exaltation with Christ. But for the moment, for the moment, it's scorn and rejection for him and for us. Secondly, it's torment for Christ. 
In verse 63, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. And I just want to say, so it's not just the scorn and rejection. Now there's the, the positive torment in different ways. There's physical torment. They beat him. They, you, you cannot beat a spirit, you see. And that's one of the reasons why Christ took on a human body. You can't beat a spirit. Christ took on human flesh in order that they would have a target to hit. Let me just mention again the timing of his death in terms of his age. He needed a body that could endure all this. He couldn't just be a child, and nor could he be a frail old man. He was at the height of his strength in order that he could bear all that they could pour out on him. Because they're not done here. His physical beating would continue and get worse. And he needed to be able to endure it physically, and he did. A body was prepared for him, and at the height of physical strength, he was subjected to great torment physically. But then psychologically... Psychologically, this blindfold game, the nature of not knowing when or from where the blows would be coming, that was psychological torment. And that's the kind of thing, actually, that we call torture. If our armed forces of this nation did such things, they would rightly be tried in a military court. It's torment. But it's also spiritual. You know, they didn't stop with that kind of thing. They had to blaspheme him. Christ, you know, look, we, we are so weak. We're so sinful. We've lived in this world so long. We get used to things. But he couldn't stand to hear blasphemy against the living God. He could never stand to hear it against any of the three persons, and that included himself. What torment must it have been to hear this blasphemy? Amazingly, I know he stood ready to forgive this kind of blasphemy. Matthew twelve thirty two. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Amazing thing. He says, I stand ready to forgive the blasphemy of those who blaspheme me directly. And we know that he in fact forgave some of those who were directly responsible for his death. This torment... Physically, psychologically, and spiritually. This is what they were pouring out Christ in his estate of humiliation. So there's scorn and rejection. There's torment. And thirdly, there's condemnation. That's what this, this state of humiliation it even gets worse. Because in verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Well, this is what we call a kangaroo court. I don't know if you have that term, but a kangaroo court is where the people, the leadership of something, a nation, have already decided that they're going to condemn somebody, but just for the sake of form, they hold a court. It's a mere show of a trial. They're not trying to find out any real evidence or trying to judge fairly. They're just already condemning somebody. That's what's happening to him. Jesus knows this. He's not fooled by it, and so he condemns them even as he, can, he himself is being condemned. He says, look, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go, because that's the idea. They get to ask him questions, and in a real court, he gets to ask them questions. 
But they're not going to answer. And mainly, they're not going to let him go because it's not a a legitimate, just court. They're not here to carefully consider evidence, and it doesn't matter what evidence is brought or what words that they hear from him, they will not believe, nor will they acquit him. And let me say that right there, I, I, I do hope that there's no one here who has a kangaroo court in their hearts with regard to Christ. Some people do, you know. And they come and they say, if you tell me, if you show me, if you prove to me, if you can explain this or that or the other, then I'll believe. And they don't mean it. They don't mean it. Actually, in their kangaroo court of their hearts, they have already condemned Christ. And they have no intention of believing him, no matter what evidence is presented. Friends, I hope we're not like that. Well, this condemnation as it continues. It was presupposed from the beginning. That's the kangaroo court. And he says in verse 69, Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. There will come a time, I should say, in which neither they nor anyone else will be looking for evidence as to whether Jesus is the Son of God. The day is coming soon enough, beloved And Christ will appear and all eyes will see him and nobody will be asking any questions. There won't be any kind of kangaroo court of prove this or show me that. It will be beyond all doubt. When you see him at the right hand of God in glory, you won't need anything else. But they say they don't need anything else in verse 71 in order to condemn him. They say, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. He has merely stated the truth, that which he has never denied, of his identity as the Son of God. And he says, that is all we need to hear. Now he's condemned. Now he's condemned. And we hear more of that in Matthew 26, 65, the parallel chapter. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy! What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Now, how's that for humiliation? How is that for humiliation? That the creator of all, the holy son of God, who never, never once committed the hint of a sin in his mind or in his words or in his deeds is being condemned to death, the death sentence. We're so wonderful in this country that we don't think anyone is ever worthy of death. In my home country, we think a few people, the very absolute worst of society scum, rarely for a single murder, normally for multiple murders, could possibly be bad enough to be condemned to death. And that's what they do with the Son of God. Condemn him to death. Well, friends, that is the estate of humiliation. If you wanted to know what it is, that's that's what it is. It's this rejection and scorn that goes along with it. It's the torment physically and psychologically and spiritually. And it's a condemnation not merely of being a sinner, which he wasn't, but of being worthy even of death. That brings us to the second part, the second half now, which is his exaltation. You ask, what is his exaltation? The answer in the larger catechism, 51, the estate of Christ's exaltation comprehendeth, meaning it includes his resurrection, ascension, 
sitting at the right hand of the Father and is coming again to judge the world. And friends, all of these things are either there or implied in the words that Christ speaks in this. Okay? First of all, the resurrection. It's implicit, but it's not insignificant. Don't forget, it's the good and necessary consequences of Scripture that we believe, not only the explicit statements, but what, is the, what do we have to believe if we hear these things? When Jesus is saying all these things, hereafter you're going to see me at the right hand of, of, of the power of God, what does that mean? He's not expecting to still be in the grave, friends. He knows good and well. He's going to rise again. He knows that he's condemned. He says, by no means are you going to let me go. I know you're going to condemn me. I know you're going to put me to death, but I also know that I'm going to rise again on the third day. At no point does he ever forget the prophecies concerning himself, as everyone else seems to do. That's why no one was expecting, but he was. He knew he was going to be risen again on the third day. He knew that. And for him to be speaking about sitting at the right hand of God, he meant that he knew full well that this was not the end for him. But he would rise again from the dead, just as he said. Everything that he says is predicated. He's not even to the point of crucifixion yet, but everything he says is predicated on the certainty of his resurrection. And friends, if only we could live that way. How could he possibly bear up under this weight One blow after another. We can barely survive one blow, one shock to the system. In any of these categories, whether physically or psychologically or spiritually, we we can barely deal with these things. And he just endures one after the other. He's living in the certainty of his own resurrection. Are you? Are you? How much more so should we actually, living in the light of the fact of his resurrection? We already have seen what happened. We know the rest of this story. All of God's people should live in that light. Well, the exaltation doesn't stop with the resurrection. That's just the beginning. That's just the, the, the predication. It goes on. Secondly, seated at the right hand of God. Something we call the session. We call the, the elders as they sit down to, to rule the church. We call that the session. But there's a greater session, and that's of Christ sitting down at the right hand of God. And that's what he says in verse 69. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. The right hand. Place of honor. Even today, the place of honor. The place where a king... If this is a king or an emperor, it's going to be his eldest son and heir. And of course, that's what Christ is. In verse 70, then they said, are you then the son of God? He says, hereafter the son of man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. The son of man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. And they immediately say, then are you the son of God? How do they come to that conclusion? How do they make that connection so quickly and easily as if one thing is pretty much the other thing? Well, because that's the logic of Scripture. Christ himself had made that connection very clear back in Luke 20, not so long ago. Luke 20, verse 41. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see? In the Psalms it says such things. It's very clear, even to them. 
He didn't seem to know too much true theology, understood exactly what was being said here. Well, the session, the seating at the right hand of, of God, is a, a, an important and significant but often forgotten part of Christ's exaltation. Hebrews 1 speaks about it. God, this is the very beginning. I'll read from the very beginning of Hebrews 1. See if you can see the, the, the seating at the right hand of God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself had purged our sins, what? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the word of God is emphasizing to us the supreme exaltation of the Son of God. So far above the angels, these poor Hebrews tended to think a little bit too much about the angels. The amazing contrast, the infinite contrast between mere creatures like angels and the Son of God seated at, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's what the larger catechism says and with regard to the exaltation. How is Christ exalted in his sitting, sitting at the right hand of God? What does that mean? Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth, and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnishes ministers and people with gifts and graces, and makes intercession for them, all those things. All those things are summarized in the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because he has a position of favor. He has a position of power. He has a position of of influence. He has a position of prominence. All the things which were not visible as he was in the state of humiliation. Now all those things are reversed entirely. Thirdly, also, his coming judgment. Again, going back to verse 69, hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. They said, are you then the Son of God? They said, you rightly say that I am. And it would be good for us to get the further information that's provided in that parallel chapter that I mentioned in Matthew 26. Jesus said to them, it is as you say, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting sitting at the right hand of the power. And here's the bit that we have added. And coming on the clouds of heaven. Because we're not going to look up and see him now in his present state of exaltation. No one can look up in the sky and see him now. The only time you're going to see him is when he returns again to judge the living and the dead. Coming in the clouds of heaven. Friends, that's what he was pointing them to. Not merely assuming that they can't really kill him because he's going to rise again the third day. Not merely pointing to his exaltation, even to the right hand of God, but of the next time that they would see him, that they would be as those being judged at his second coming. How is Christ to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world? Christ is to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world and that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men 
shall come again, the last day in great power and full manifestation of his own glory and of his Father's with all his holy angels, with the shout and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God to judge the world in righteousness. You see how they, they point out he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men. Friends, this is the exaltation. And they're, they're there adding to and contributing and, and completing the work of humiliation. And Christ is, is living and breathing in the future and is a state of exaltation. Now, what do we do with these things? I say, first of all, what is our application of it? First of all, I'd ask you the question, what need do you have of further witness? He said, "What further need do we have of what, what need do we have of further witness?" Well, it's true. You know what? They didn't need what they had. He had already proven himself beyond any shadow of doubt to be the Christ in all of his works. He said, "Look, if you don't believe my testimony, at least believe the works. They testify to me. I do the works that no one has ever done. All the works of healing, all the works of of casting out demons, of raising from the dead, of forgiving sins." They all testified to him being the Christ. But now, now, they have it and you have it, friends, from his own lips. He says, yep, it is as you say, I am. And that's the way it is in Greek. That divine name, ego eme, I am the living God. Yes, it's true, he says. And Matthew Henry said, if they'd ask him this question with a willingness to admit that he was a Christ and to receive him accordingly, if he could give them sufficient proof, it would have been well. And it might have been forever well with him. How about that? Think about it. If they'd come with an open mind, if they'd come with a desire to even to receive of his own testimony, they might have been saved. But no, it was with the resolution not to believe him. Friends, let's not follow in their footsteps because today is the day of mercy and grace and I cannot believe it. My sense of incredulity only only increases as we go through this gospel. It is truly amazing. Sometimes you read through the Old Testament you say, wow, he's really going to zap them now. That is the end. And many times it almost was the end. But the Lord in his goodness and mercy gives him yet more time to repent. And so it is, and so it is, that he did not bring the world to an end when his son was being condemned to death. But now is the day of mercy, and you have no need of of further witness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of mercy. Secondly, to all of us who do believe, I would say we need to have Christ's mind. You know, Christ, there are two aspects to Christ's mind, that have the mind of Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. One is to think of ourselves in this world as we are in great humiliation, in humility, serving. We're servants. That's the, the mind of Christ. We approach things that are happening as we are servants. But there's the other aspect of, of Christ's mind, which we see revealed in the way he responds to them, which is that he is setting his heart on the exaltation to come. He is setting his heart on eternity. His his willingness to serve is utter humiliation. But his expectation is with regard to his perfect 
exaltation yet to come. And, and that should be us. Because the same things, in essence, are true of us. You know, he was looking beyond his present circumstances. And, and the question is, how precisely did Christ console himself in the midst of all this? Because yes, Christ did console himself. How did he do it? Another part of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, that author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see how that is? It's the state of humiliation and exaltation there in different ways. And it's, it all has to do with Christ's attitude, has to do with Christ's weighing up of these things. What did he think of that shame and condemnation? He despised it. He disregarded it. He, for, he was moving on from it. He was willing to receive it, but he regarded it not. But on the other hand, he's looking forward to that estate of exaltation. He's looking forward to what's going to happen in the future. He's consoling himself in, in heaven, in being with his people, as I've said many times before. He, we look forward to being with Christ, don't we? He looks forward to being with us. That's how he consoled himself. And that's how we can console ourselves in such times. We must look beyond this world, friend, and that is, that's the thing that really gets me sometimes about the shift in theology, the shift in preaching from, from our true problem, which is spiritual, and our true solution, which is spiritual, to something that is this worldly. My real problem is that we are going to live in terrible, disheartening circumstances to the point of despair if we do that. Okay? That is not good news. What is happening in this world right now is not good news, friends. Do you understand? It isn't. And the more you think it is, the more it's going to be worse for you when you're disappointed. It wasn't good news for Christ. It's not good news for you. What we look for, what we put our hope in, lies beyond this current life. And if we have any consolation, the consolation is in what is to come, not what is now. Look beyond this world. That's, by the way, the, the, the whole point of that. I've, I've quoted Hebrews uh, 1, 2 so many times. I'm, I'm sure we all have, have memorized it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. But there's an application to that, even in Hebrews. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself because he did, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, you see? Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as as sons. A son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Don't be discouraged. Don't be downhearted. Look to the future. Look to being with Christ and with all of his people. Thirdly and finally, let me say, don't be so easily offended. I always preach to myself, I certainly preach to myself on this one, don't be so easily offended. You know, what, what is, what's the calculus of offense? It has to do with the magnitude of offense and with the magnitude, at least in our own estimation, of the one who is offended, right? 
how bad is the offense and how great is the person that's being offended? And you multiply those and you come up with some, this is how much offense we should take. Friends, Christ is the measure of all things and Christ must be the norm by which we consider these things. All right, what was the magnitude of the offense of the things that he endured? It was no trivial little insult. He was humiliated in every way any human being knows how to humiliate another. Absolutely nothing was left to him at all. It wasn't enough for him to be dimed out by his friend Judas. It wasn't enough for him to be arrested as a thief. It wasn't enough for him merely to be under arrest. But they had to mock him and scourge him and beat him and torment him and ultimately to be condemned to death. Things we'll consider more. And what was the magnitude and the greatness of his person, not only in his own estimation, but in reality? Why, he was Almighty God, the creator of all things, the eternal Son of God, the Christ, to whom all glory and honor are due, the one to whom we were all created to worship. And that's what they did to him. The number you come up with, friends, is infinite. The offense that was done to Christ at that moment was fully infinite. And what is his response to it? He bore it patiently. He bore it patiently. Much long-suffering. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us what love is. It says in verse 4, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Christ is our example. This is exactly what he did. He's not asking us of anything that he did not himself do. This is what love looks like. And being willing to suffer long. And being willing to not be provoked. But bearing all things and enduring all things. Yes, for the sake of his Father. And yes, for the sake of those he came to save. For us. And shall we do less? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, every time that we look into your word, we see the truth of your grace more and more. And if we've never seen it before, we see it now. Truly, Lord, you are gracious to send your Son into this sin-cursed world knowing precisely the treatment, the humiliation, the depth of humiliation that he would endure. And Lord, that Christ would endure these things with such patience and certainly not to despair. Lord, patiently looking to the things that were yet future. Well, Heavenly Father, we see these amazing aspects of Christ's person and work and his humiliation and indeed his exaltation. And we also see the perfect paradigm for ourselves. We see the truth, the reality that things 
are often bad in this world. And there are many things to be endured. But Lord, that our response to them is to bear them patiently. Knowing, Lord, what you have in store for us. And indeed, it is no less than what you had in store for Christ. All these things he shares with us. As he looked forward to being with us, so we look forward to being with him. And what is more, Lord, we, have our, we already know of his resurrection. It's already happened. And soon enough it shall be for all. Well, Lord, we pray, therefore, that we live in great hope in these things, clinging to Christ in faith, knowing today is the day of mercy. Lord, how we pray that you'd bless us in this year to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.